Well, it's good to see each of you this evening. Good to be able to study the Word of God with you. And I invite your attention to Luke, the third chapter. Luke 3. Alma was telling me, and I, that's the first I'd heard of it, Vicki Brownlee and Doyle, she said she understands that they're on a cruise, so that would explain why they're not here. In Luke, the third chapter, beginning at verse 41, his parents, that is Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy, Jesus, lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So, when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. There are different interesting things about this story. One of the questions, of course, is about Jesus himself in his early years of life. This manifests to us that he evidently had come to know by the age of 12. He had come to know at least who he was. Who he was not only from the standpoint of just being the son of Joseph and Mary, but that he was the son of God. You know, I've often wondered, I've often thought about, Since this is brought up and this is the 
first time we have anything of this sort told us about Jesus. It's obvious, I think, from the early chapters, the early statements about Jesus in the New Testament after he was born, that he didn't have the ability at the time he was born, when he was two years old, when Herod was seeking to kill him, he didn't have the ability to do what he's doing on this occasion with the, with the leaders of the Jewish people. So he evidently grew in his knowledge. He was born from the standpoint of what he could do as a baby. He was evidently pretty much like any baby. But he came to know and learn early. And we're not told anything in detail about what his mother Mary had said to him or had taught him. In fact, some of the statements made in this, that they're rather puzzled by even the answer that he gave to them, which kind of astounds us. But we're looking at it from our perspective and they have a completely different perspective because they're experiencing what we can see the whole picture of now from beginning to end. And so, but those are the interesting things. I think what we have to do is just accept what the Bible says about it and be satisfied with that and not, not do a great deal of speaking a great deal of speculating about it. But notice now, at least in one sense, Joseph and Mary had done what? They had lost Jesus. Is it possible for us to lose Jesus? Absolutely. That's possible. But in a different sense, we're not going to lose him from the standpoint of physical location like Joseph and Mary did. But we can lose him in a, even a greater sense. Lose him in the sense of not knowing him, not following in his footsteps, not receiving the salvation that he brings. Losing that which Jesus can provide for us. We need, we need Jesus because he is doing the Father's business, he said. When Mary asked his mother, asked him the question, why have you done this to us? We've been looking for you all over the place. And he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? What was his father's business? Well, we read about that in some passages earlier in Matthew, the first chapter. You remember before Jesus was born, when it began to be announced to Mary and to Joseph that they were going to have this child. We are told in verse 20, while he thought 
about these things, while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What was his business? What was the business of his father? Our salvation. The salvation of souls from sin. And so that's the that's characteristic here. In Luke, the 19th chapter, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And he's a short man, and he gets up in the tree, and Jesus comes along and sees him there, and he says, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. And we're told that uh, in verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to bring you salvation, Zacchaeus. And that's why Jesus came to this earth. That's why he died on the cross. That's why the Father sent him from heaven to come to this earth and live in the flesh. Live as a man, God in the flesh. In order that he might become that go-between. That one that stands between man. He is man and he is God. And he qualifies as the mediator between the two. And so his business, and the business of his father, his business of sending Jesus Christ, is salvation of souls, salvation of my soul, salvation of your soul, salvation of as many souls, as will listen to Jesus and to his teaching. So they supposed that he was somewhere among their relatives when they began to look for him. And you know, it says after three days. I'm not sure where he's counting from, when, where they're counting from when they say after three days. If it means from the time they left Jerusalem, then they're one day's journey away and it took them a day's journey to get back. That leaves one day for them to look for him. And they, in that case, they would have found him the day, that it, the day that they got back or the day after they got back, the third day from that standpoint. But if it means from the... Third day from they, when they got back to Jerusalem. And you think about that. Think about a mother and dad having realized that they had left behind a day's journey on foot. A day's journey. A 12-year-old son in uh, what would have been a pretty good-sized city, big city, in that day of Jerusalem. What could happen to him? 
But why were they in that situation in the first place? Had they neglected their son? No, I don't believe so. Commentators make the point, and I think they're right, right about it, because that's not the only generation in which that happened. When people were among gathering of relatives and friends, on any occasion, what happened to all the children that was there? Well, there was just a bunch of children and one parent might, there might be a situation arise where one parent would go and none of the other parents would go. He'd take, he'd care, take care of the whole situation. Or she would. If somebody, if his child would need to be corrected, he'd correct that child. If the other children need to be corrected, he'd correct them. I remember that was the case early in my life when I was a child. And I'm sure that's been characteristic of a lot of situations through the years. So they weren't, as, it, as the passage indicates, they weren't really all that concerned about where he was. They just expected him to be a, among the relatives and among the friends. Evidently, there was a pretty big group of them that went together and traveled together to Jerusalem for this occasion. And so now, but when they found out he was not with them, They went back and searched for him diligently. And after three days, they found him. And it was an occasion of rejoicing. Notice, and you wonder, was this because he was Jesus or because of what he said? And obviously, he didn't get in trouble. He wasn't punished for this action that he had done. I can imagine what would have happened to some of, to me or some of my associates at 12 years old if the same kind of thing had happened to us. But I, I have an idea that not only Mary, but Joseph, when he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, they might not have really appreciated understood all about that, but they knew that they had a special child, child didn't they? They both knew that that child was miraculously conceived. He was not Joseph's natural son. He was Mary's natural son. But he was the son of God born to Mary. And so they did not, evidently did not punish him or reprimand him even, except to say, why did you do this to us? So his business is to come, was to come and save us. I'm thankful for that. Because I don't have a hope without that salvation. I'm not going to make it to heaven because I'm Maybe, relatively speaking, a pretty good person. I hope I am. But do I think I can, by how I live and how I've conducted myself throughout my lifetime, that I deserve heaven? Not at all. 
You say, well, why not? You, surely there's more good things in your life than sins. It's not done on that basis. You know, I've used the illustration different times. Some of you have heard me use this. And when you get out here on the highway and you drive above the speed limit and the policeman stops you and gives you a ticket, What's your situation? Well, you're, e you're either going to have to pay that ticket or you're going to have to get to court to show you mercy and forgive you of the ticket. But suppose you said to the officer, well, wait a minute. Most of the time I drive within the speed limit. <laughs> Does that take care of the one violation? the same principle. When we committed that first sin in our lives, there's only one way to take care of that. It's not by just deciding, well, I'm, I'm going to try to do better in the future. We ought to try to do that all right. But that's not going to take care of that one sin. The only way that's going to be taken care of is by what Christ has done for us the forgiveness that we have through his sacrifice when we do what he tells us to do now wait a minute preacher if we have to do something then that means we are, no that doesn't mean we earn anything that's a part of faith how can we say that we have faith in the Lord, if he tells us to do something, and I say, I, I don't believe I have to do that to be saved. Is that faith in the Lord? No, that's denying what the Lord says. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. Somebody said, well, why didn't he say, he that believes not and is not condemned? And he's not baptized, shall we say. Well, that way it would take both. It would take both unbelief and not being baptized to be lost. See that? He that believes not and is not baptized shall be lost. Well, someone then would say, well, if I just not baptized, then I'm not going to be lost. No, he that believes and is baptized. Those two things are coupled together with that little word and. They, have both, they both have same relationship to the results, salvation. Belief plus baptism equals salvation or being saved. So, where can we find Jesus? Well, this says that they looked among the relatives and acquaintances. Well, sometimes relatives and acquaintances, they may know where he is. They may be living for him. But we cannot depend on just looking among our... Now, they looked from a literal standpoint... 
but we make spiritual application of that. Are we going to find Jesus and salvation through him simply by going to our relatives? That applies to us or anybody. And the answer to that, of course, is no. As I indicated, some relatives may be fine, but others may be, may not be. They may, they may be lost. They may not have salvation. Let's look at some more passages. Let's, this time, let's go back to the book of Mark, chapter 3. In Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Then his brothers and his mother came, Jesus' brothers and mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered, he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? Did Jesus not know who his mother and brothers were? Oh, yes. But he's got a point to make. And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and mother. That's a simple concept, isn't it? But it's true. Christians, those who have come to Christ for salvation, they are part of Jesus' family, God's family, God's house, God's household. Oh, how many passages you could use, of course, to, to talk about that. For instance, in Ephesians, in Ephesians, the... Fourth chapter. No, second chapter it is. Second chapter of Ephesians. He's talking about in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace, to you who are far off, and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Came and preached peace. What did he preach when he preached peace? <laughs> he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached the peace that we have with God when we come to Jesus to receive forgiveness of sin. This is not found. 
This is not found in the man-made religions and temples of this earth. In Acts, the seventh chapter, Stephen, who was stoned after, right after this, was preaching to the Jewish people. And he says in verse 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Of course, that relates, first of all, to the physical temple that was a part of God's dwelling place in the Old Testament. That was a shadow or a type of the true temple that the Lord was to bring through Jesus Christ. So he says, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And then he began to reprimand the Jewish leaders especially. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So, that which has been built by man, that's not the true temple or throne of God. This relationship that we are in in Christ Jesus is a spiritual relationship. The temple of our Lord is not this physical building. This is simply a meeting place for God's temple. The temple is the church. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 3. You are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Writing to the Christians at Corinth. So, man-made religions. Have you ever stopped to think about why is it that the denominational world in general does not look upon the church as being an important part of God's plan of salvation. I've heard people say over and over through my lifetime, oh, you can go, you can go to heaven. You can be saved and go to heaven and never be a member of the church. If that's true, that's, that's taking the importance of the church away. And of course, people are often heard to say, well, the church can't save you. Well, that's true. The church is not the Savior. Christ is the Savior, but he's the Savior of what? Paul says in Ephesians 5, he's the Savior of the body. What's the body? The church. Paul identifies that. His head over all things to the church, which is his body. So do we read anything about that relationship, about that church in the New Testament? Yes. We read about how it's identified. 
We read about its organizational structure. We read about the uh, authority in which that church is to worship him, worship God and Jesus Christ. And it describes to us the work that that church is to do. And I don't believe anybody's going to try to successfully deny that that's true. But when somebody says, well, one church is as good as another, a man-made church is not anywhere close to being as valuable as the one the Lord said he would build and did build. But somebody said, oh, Leon, you just think you and your bunch, those that you're associated with, that you're the only right ones. We're not right because of who we are or what we call ourselves. We're right if we're following that divine pattern. And only then. And anybody can do the same thing. But it's not true that... Churches that have been built by men that even say to you, you don't have to be a member of our church to be a part of the saved. Would you say you don't have to be a member of the church that Jesus said he would build in order to be saved? He is the Savior of the body. The church is not the Savior. The church is the saved. God doesn't have any children outside of his family. That's one way to put it. The church is the family, the household of God. So, and to, and to substantiate the point that I just made, let's go read briefly from Mark, the seventh chapter. Mark the seventh chapter. And I'll begin reading at verse uh, 8, I believe it is. No, verse 6. Verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, many other such things you do, he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Wouldn't you say that's a pretty good description of what a lot of folks do? And any of us are capable of doing that. That's why we emphasize not that we're perfect. No, we depend upon God's grace and mercy and forgiveness as much as anybody. But we don't receive that mercy 
through going, through going our own way and making our own commandments and building our own churches and so forth. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 to verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Practice what? Lawlessness. What does it mean to practice lawlessness? Practice that that is not in God's law. Practice that which he has not authorized. Book, chapter, and verse, please, is what that's saying. But the point that I want to make in closing is that we've got to go all the way back, just like Joseph and Mary did. We've got to go all the way back to Jerusalem to find the Lord. Now, they had to go back physically. But I'm talking about spiritually or symbolically. We've got to go back all the way to the true, new Jerusalem. Listen to it now in Hebrews 12 again. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's not old physical Jerusalem. That's talking about the spiritual relationship, the church. Look at it. I'm not just making that up. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, of the firstborn ones, who are registered in heaven. Who is it that's a part of that church? Those that have their names written in the book of life in heaven. Jesus wrote them down. He writes them down. He started that when the church was established on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. He's been doing that ever since. And if our names are not in that book of life, we're no part of this salvation. And Jesus gives us a sincere invitation. Revelation 3, as, he, as John the Apostle writes, oh well, he's reporting what Jesus is telling him to write. In Revelation 3 at verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to dine, come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now he gives that invitation to the church at Laodicea to come back to him, of course. 
quit doing the things that were contrary to his will and accept the things that he had, the corrections that he had given. And so he's invited. But that principle applies to all who need Jesus and salvation. And if you're here tonight and you need to respond to the invitation, we ask you to come right now. As together we stand to sing. I am without one plea, but that thy blood washed for me, and that thou bidst me come to Praise God. 
Be safe.